Okay, so welcome everyone to Drisha. I uh, love having you with us, whether you're uh, watching us uh, live on Facebook um, or here with us uh, on Zoom. Uh, this is the last class uh, of our session on uh, navigating the employer-employee relationship with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. Um, if you're here with us, we encourage you to turn your video on if you're able. Uh, also, feel free to ask questions. Uh, you can um, write them by uh, commenting uh, here in the chat <clears throat> box or write them as a comment um, on Zoom. I mean, I'm sorry, on Facebook. If you're watching us live on Facebook, uh, I will be monitoring uh, the questions and comments there as well. Uh, and yeah, with that, I'll turn this uh, to you, Rabbi Ziering. Okay, great. Thank you, Evie. Um, okay, so last week we um, discussed um, the overarching uh, principles involved with what 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 do you do if you find out that your employer, your employee, your partner um, is engaged in illegal activity, uh, anti-halachic activity, unethical activity, um, with obviously you know there are just potential distinctions between them, but fundamentally what factors uh, go into the decision? And we talked about lifna iver, uh, the question of uh, your spiritual culpability when you're involved definitely in aiding um, or enabling someone else uh, to sin. We talked about the responsibility of rebuke, uh, your responsibility, if possible, to, um, to prevent someone from sinning by, by educating them, by informing them that what they're doing um, is wrong. We talked about different parameters. Um, we talked about unique problems in terms of partnering um, with people who are sinning. Uh, we talked about pr um, profiting from uh, sinful activities in a way that contributes to the to the problematic society, um, such as buying from, uh, stolen goods uh, and the like. Um, and this week, we're going to zero in on a specific mechanism, um, which is usually, um, almost always, uh, utilized um, by <clears throat> an employee against their employer or perhaps someone more powerful um, in their in their company. Um, it happens in government as well, and that is whistleblowing. Um, right, and whistleblowing um, in general refers to a case in which uh, somebody um, from within a company, within a, um, a government, within a charitable organization um, draws attention publicly to the fact that someone within the organization, within the government, within the company is committing a crime, is doing something unethical. Um, and decides that the way to, to stop that is by, by publicizing it. Um, now, in certain cases, it could be that they brought it up and raised the issue within the company. Um, it could be that they were afraid to, and therefore they went straight to the press or they went straight to some outside <coughs> party. Um, and again, as I said, usually, um, if not always, this mechanism is utilized by people in cases where there is a power imbalance. Um, and the person publicizing doesn't have the, the power to do something themselves. Um, now, it could be that it's a partner, right? But usually it's a case in which um, the, the party who is publicizing the crime uh, doesn't have the ability to stop it, right? So if you have the CEO uh, sees that one of their employees is doing something wrong, it's much more likely that if they actually care, they will fire uh, that employee, they will somehow put a, put a stop to it. And therefore, this mechanism um, is usually used, again, when the person who is 
drawing attention to the crime is less powerful and therefore doesn't directly have the ability to, to stop the activity. Um, so that's the question we're gonna deal with today, which is, um, is that permitted? Um, under what circumstances? What issues need to be raised uh, within that context? Um, is there a difference between um, anonymous whistleblowing where the whistleblower is not um, putting himself or herself on the line in the same way um, by not telling the world um, who he is um, or who she is? Um, does that make it worse? Um, are there times when that is uh, is legitimate? Um, those are the questions that, that I want to deal with. So before we look at the sources, um, so what do you think, right? What unique factors do we have to consider um, when we're dealing specifically with whistleblowing? Again, last week we dealt with the overarching questions, which is why in any way, shape, or form am I responsible for what other people do uh, that might be improper? I'm not doing anything wrong myself. Um, why do I have to uh, draw attention to this at all? Why do I have to get involved? Um, and this week, like I said, we're dealing specifically with the question, okay, if you decide that you're going to get involved, um, is this <clears throat> mechanism um, legitimate? Um, and if it is, what limitations might there exist? Okay, so I'll throw it out to, to you. What do you think, right? What categories do we need to consider? What factors do we need to bring into the, uh, into the conversation? Um, oh, okay, the chat. That's just the source sheets. Okay. Um, yeah, so feel free to, to unmute yourselves, to, to send a message in the chat. Um, what do you think, right? What, what questions, what halakhic issues um, do, we need to, uh, to, do we need to consider? <coughs> okay, so we'll, we'll, well, then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the, into the sources. Um, so again, Last week, we dealt with the questions of what would make somebody responsible. But if we talk specifically about whistleblowing, so we, we have to look at the, the halachic issues that are raised in terms of sharing information um, that is fundamentally not yours alone uh, to share. So um, I'll share the screen here. The sources are in the chat um, for anyone who wants them. Um, but there are really several issues that we need to consider. Uh, one is the issue of confidentiality. And often when you're dealing with um, when you're dealing with a case of whistleblowing, if not always, you're dealing with uh, with information that is not public by design. Now that's not always true. It's usually true. It's not always true. Um, right? There has been a decent amount written on the Enron scandal. Um, that one of the the amazing things about the Enron scandal was that a very little of the illegal the the problematic activity was actually hidden. Um, in the sense that um, it was inaccessible, but rather it was publicized in such convoluted ways and buried in so much um, verbiage and, and it, with so much legalese that unless you really read through hundreds of pages uh, to understand what was going on, you wouldn't realize um, that they were doing things which were problematic and, and illegal. Um, but usually that's not the case. Um, usually, when you're dealing with um, with something illegal or unethical going on within a company, um, and an employee decides that the only way to deal with it is to to share it with the world, um, you're dealing with information that fundamentally is private, is confidential. Um, so the first issue we want to deal with is well, what does Allah have to say about 
confidentiality, right? First, we need to establish that there is a value, and then we can talk about are there exceptions uh, to that value. Um, so fundamentally, yes. Um, the first potential source is the following. Um, right? Do not, um, I don't love this translation from JPS, but do not be a gossip monger um, or a peddler of information um, amongst your people. And don't stand by, by the blood of your friend. I am God. Now, this verse is normally uh, invoked to, uh, to justify the prohibition, to source the prohibition of what we know as Lashon Hara, um, which colloquially is used for gossip. Um, however, it's worth noting that in the medieval period, this was not settled at all. Um, and many, many major authorities thought that the primary prohibition of Lashon Hara was not gossip um, or slander. Um, and that itself is a, is a divide, right? The, the normal sort of taxonomy that, that is uh, passed around is that from Maimonides through the Chavetz Chaim, which is that Lashon Hara means true gossip. Um, Motsi Shemra is slander, is where you spread false information. Um, however, um, there were those who thought that Motish, that um, Lashon Hara meant slander, but there were also those Rishonim such as, um, <coughs> sorry, such as some of the Goanim, Rav Gaon, the Ritva writes this um, as well, who felt that, that Lashon Hara actually prefer, refers to the prohibition of, uh, of violating confidentiality. And therefore they read the, the, the verse here, Lotelech Rachil, uh, don't be a peddler of information, um, not as don't gossip, but don't take information which is not yours and share it. Um, others source it based on the following verse in Mishlei. Now, this is a little bit complicated because we don't normally derive primary halachic categories from other parts of Tanakh besides for the Torah itself, um, but it at least can be in a, um, a secondary source. <coughs> Um, the verse there says, Defend your right against your fellow, but do not give away the secrets uh, of another. Um, and again, whatever you think the, the weight of a verse not from the Torah is, it clearly thinks that sharing uh, secrets are is, is problematic. I see I have a chat. One second. Uh, nope, that's the source of the source, sources. Again? No, yeah. Um, and this, the, the Gemara that's normally invoked uh, to, to prove that halacha recognizes the value of, of confidentiality and therefore prohibits sharing information um, that is not your own, is the following in number three, the Gemara Yoma 4b. Vaikra el Moshe vayidaber. So the, the drasha here is a little bit weird, um, um, but it says as follows, God called to Moshe saying, so lama higdim kriya lidibur, the first law that the Gemara learns from this opening verse in Vayikra is that God called to Moshe and then spoke to him, which means that first you need sort of an introduction. You want to talk to someone first, call their name and say, um, Evie, I have something to tell you, and then start talking. Don't jump into the conversation. Then the Talmud derives something else. Um, so if you skip down, Rabbah says, How do we know that whenever you tell somebody something, the presumption is 
that they are not allowed to share it unless you tell them, go, you're allowed to say it. That God spoke to Moshe from the tent of meeting, and lemor is read as a contraction of lo emor. It means saying, but it's read as a contraction is lo emor, do not say. And from here we derive that it is prohibited um, or at least unethical. This is a bit of a discussion in the Rishonim. Um, whether this is technically a prohibition or it's or it's simply something that's wrong, um, which might be a slightly weaker level of prohibition. Um, but you're not allowed to share somebody's secrets. If someone has entrusted you with information, you cannot share it. So the the first um, category that we have to deal with with in in a case of whistleblowing is um, is it legitimate under whatever circumstances for um, for the employee to share the secrets of the boss, of the company, um, in a case when what they're doing is problematic. Um, and again, it could, it could range. It could be illegal. It could be dangerous. Uh, it could be unethical. It could be that it simply doesn't um, fit the image that the company is trying to, to share. Right? We could have a range, of, um, a range of how bad what they're doing is. But fundamentally, they're sharing information that isn't their own. So we need to at least contend with this halachic category that prohibits and limits um, the right of someone to breach confidentiality and to share secrets which are not their own. That's the first category. Um, the second category is what we colloquially call lashon hara. And again, as I mentioned, these terms um, are a bit complicated and the terms as they are used in modern um, halachic speech are not agreed upon by all uh, medieval authorities. But nevertheless, for, th for the moment, we'll use the colloquial one. And Lashon Aran normally refers to gossip. I mean, Motsi Shemrat to slander. And this is based, as I mentioned, on the Rambam. And the Rambam summarizes uh, th uh, this view in number four. If you bear tales against your fellow, you violate a prohibition. As it says, do not be a tale bearer, a gossip monger amongst your people. And even though you do not get lashes, it is a great sin. And it causes the death of many people. And that's why the second half of the verses don't stand by I'm watching your friend's blood because and then he brings a story from Tanakh to bolster his point uh, in Tanakh um, we hear the story that David HaMelech King David when he's running away from Shaul goes to the Kohanic city of Nov they don't know um, even if they suspect they don't know for sure that David is now involved in, in treason uh, as Shaul understands it, that he's running away from the king. So they give him food, they give him a, they give him a weapon, they give him Goliath's sword. Um, and there is a servant of Shaul who sees this, whose name is Doeg Adomi, And he relays the information back to Shaul, which leads to Shaul to, uh, killing or having Doeg kill the entire city of, of Nov for treason. Uh, and here, what caused their death was Doeg's gossip, the fact that he shared the information uh, with Shaul. And from here, the Rambam shows you that gossip is quite dangerous. So, Rachil. So, what does it mean to be a gossip monger? 
if you go from one person to to another, Vaomer Ploni, Shamatia Ploni. Um, so there's a category he calls Rechilut, which is where I say to someone else, I heard that he was gossiping about you. The next category is Yesh Avon Gadol Mizad Ma'od. There's a much greater sin. And that is what we call Lashon Hara or gossip. And that's when you talk badly about someone, even though what you're saying is true. Aval Homer Sheker, but if you lie, you slander. Nikra Moti Shemra Al Chavera. You are called a Moti Shemra, and that is the worst of the three categories. Um, now, whether you call it Lashon Hara, you call it something else, you call it Rechilut, um, gossip, even true information under normal circumstances is problematic, is forbidden. Um, and again, all these issues are, are more complicated. The question of whether it's really forbidden or whether it's simply um, problematic um, in a lesser form is not quite clear. Um, uh, Benny Brown has written a very long article noting that until uh, the Chavetz Chaim, until Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan in the late 19th and early 20th century in his magnum opus, um, Chavetz Chaim, um, the laws of Lashon Hara were not usually codified as law besides for the few paragraphs uh, in the Rambam. And therefore he suggests that maybe according to many Lashon Hara is not properly categorized as, as law, but rather as um, ethics or aspirational law. I um, mean, there might be distinctions uh, practically in terms of how these laws manifest. Um, but one way or the other, we do need to contend with this thing we call uh, Lashon Hara. So, if you have an employee who now wants to share information about what's going on problematic within their company, unethically, illegally, anti-halachic, whatever the case may be. So the first issue they're going to deal with is confidentiality, which is a halachic value or law. And the second is Lashon Hara. Um, again, the Rambam's version of Lashon Hara, which is gossip, is sharing negative information, even when it is true. So it's clear that if someone wants to be a whistleblower, um, we need to somehow contend with these issues. So how do we contend with these issues? So the simplest way is to note that there are exceptions. There are exceptions, and there are cases where one is permitted, and not only permitted, but obligated to share information. Um, now, one of those is derived from the following source in number five. How do you know from where is it derived that someone that if you see someone trying to kill somebody else, you see someone pursuing someone, it's called a rodev, that you're allowed to even kill the pursuer to save the life of the one being chased? Talmud Lomar, Aldam because it says, don't stand idly by when your friend. Um, is dying. The Gemara then says, well, is that all it's teaching us? We already know that this teaches another law. How do you know that if you see someone drowning in a river or being dragged away by a wild animal or being attacked by bandits, that you have to save him. Because you're not let us in and idly by. So here we have 
a rule that tells us if someone is, if their life is in danger, so you are obligated um, to stand up and to save the person. The Talmud goes on to clarify this means even if it costs you money, right? Even if you have to extend money, uh, you have to you have to ex extend resources, expend resources uh, to save the person. You're obligated uh, to do that. Um, so now I, I want to, if ever in your life you've heard a shear on Lashon Hara, uh, you probably have heard the Chavetz Chaim's exceptions called To'elet. Um, but before we see that, I want to really frame it differently. Um, and note how the Chavetz Chaim is a, a little bit of a weaker formulation that I think is probably warranted. Um, and that is based on the Pitchei Tshuva in Arachayim Kufnud Vav, 156, um, who says as follows. I mean, he says as follows, I'll, I'll read the English. He says, I've seen it fitting to mention here something that which all the ethical writings have made so much noise in the world about the son of, sin of Lashon Hara. He said, listen, people make a big deal about this thing called Lashon Hara. Um, right? They scream and yell, don't gossip. Um, and now, as you'll see, he's really going to talk about issues that come up a lot in the modern period, which is where people scream about Lashon Hara sometimes even when that is a way of protecting a victim, uh, sorry, per protecting a perpetrator, right? They say that the victim can't speak up because Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara. And to this, the Pilchei Tshuva says, I will make noise in the world about the opposite. I'm going to scream and yell about the opposite. The sin much greater than this, and it is more common. So there's something much worse than Lashon Hara. As bad as Lashon Hara is, as bad as gossip is, there's something worse. Specifically, I'm referring to the holding back from speaking when it is needed to save the oppressed from his oppressor, right? What's much worse than speaking is not speaking when by being silent, you allow somebody to get hurt. By way of parable, one who saw one who was ambushing his friend deceitfully on the way in the desert to kill him. So I'm tunneling into his house or store at night. Is it possible that he should refrain from letting his friend know that he should be careful because he's worried about violating Lashon Hara? His sin would be too great to bear, for he violates and you shall not stand idly by your friend's blood. The same is true about money, which is included in the obligation of returning lost objects. As long as all of his intention is not to harm it, but for the benefit of the second person and the betterment of the group, the group and to protect them, then he fulfills through this a great deed which is invaluable. Right, so the Pithrei Tshuva comes and says, listen, <clears throat> I know it's important. I know everyone talks about Lashon Hara. I know all the Muslims farm, all the ethical writings say, don't gossip, don't talk about your friends. And that's all true. However, if <clears throat> talking about Lashon Hara, being worried about Lashon Hara means that you see something happening, someone is getting hurt and you don't stop it because you're afraid of Lashon Hara, that is wrong. Because there is an, not just a permission, but an obligation to stand up and protect people who are about to be hurt, to protect the vulnerable. Um, and he notes that if the issue at hand is bodily harm, so then, or definitely death, so then the, the, the mitzvah, the obligation involved that mandates that you have to share the information is don't stand by your friend's blood. And he says, even if all that's happening is monetary loss, so maybe he argues it's not but it's something else. It's called we have an obligation to return lost objects to people. 
um, which means that we have a responsibility towards their money. So if I know that my company is doing something that is cheating people out of their money, out of their investments, out of whatever, and I don't do anything, so I am responsible because I have the ability to give them their money back, to ensure they don't lose their money, and I'm not doing that. And that is prohibited. It is being derelict in your responsibility to protect um, the other. And I'll note, um, others have highlighted that, that second category. Um, um, Riff Cook's father is quoted as, as, as talking about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to skip down for a minute. Um, just out of technicality, um, it is clear right, that you are responsible to save people even from monetary loss. Um, and that within the rubric that the Pitchei Tshuva just set up allows you, or in fact obligates you, to publicize information, at least if that's the way to protect people. Um, however, he thinks that monetary loss isn't covered by lo ta'amod al-dam um, That is actually a little bit of a complicated question. It may be that even monetary loss is covered by lo ta'amod al-dam uh, So very briefly, that's based on a source in number 11, uh, the Sifra, which is the Tanaitic Midrash al contemporaneous or so with the Mishnah, says as follows, uminayin shi'im lo edut, how do you know that if you know, um, if you have evidence that could help somebody in court, you're not allowed to be silent? Because it says, don't stand idly by your friend's um, blood. Um, now, the simplest understanding, right? Normally what it means is when you have evidence that you can provide in court to protect someone, that's usually a monetary case because in a criminal case, um, your responsibility isn't towards the, um, the defendant as much as it is to God. I mean, therefore it's the simplest understanding of this source is that lota'amod al-dam um, includes monetary law as well. Uh, I, I once heard suggested, I heard it in the name of Rais Alvejic. I'm not sure this is true. I've never seen it in writing. Um, that he thinks that the drasha is based on the fact that dam can mean blood, but damim also means money. So maybe the midrash is punning um, on that. Um, and I'll just note that if you want to look in 12, um, in source 12, the Rambam does rule this way. Uh, however, others are more hesitant and think that uh, maybe um, only in life-saving in, in cases, or maybe in cases of at least extreme bodily harm, um, can that be under lotaminal damreacha? But whether you call it lotaminal damreacha or you call it hashamad um, aveda, what the pitchei tshuva tells you is that <clears throat> um, in a case when your sharing of information is the way to protect someone financially, physically, to protect their life, their well-being, you have an obligation to do so, and it's not lashon hara. It's not lashon hara. Now, many people have probably, like I said, have probably at some point in their life heard the Chavetz Chaim's exception to Lashon Hara, which is called To'elet, which is Lashon Hara for a purpose. Um, I will note that I, and I've, I've argued this at length in writing um, uh, elsewhere um, in a series I wrote for the VBM, and it's, it takes up, I think, a fifth of the book that I have coming out through, through Karen. Um, I've argued there that the Chavetz Chaim um, has a different framing, which I think is, is, is actually a minority view, uh, which is that um, when it's justified to say Lashon Hara, 
it's still Lashon Hara, it's just permitted Lashon Hara. Um, and therefore you're supposed to view it as sort of a, um, um, a dispensation to do something forbidden. Um, I think this is a bit of a weaker formulation. He does also believe there's a mitzvah, but his framing is much more limiting uh, than what you have here, let's say in the Petre Tshuva, who says that sharing information, right? It's not that it's Lashon Hara, but you can carve out an exception, um, but actually it's not Lashon Hara. It is fundamentally a mitzvah and you're not supposed to conceptualize it as an exception within Lashon Hara, but it's fundamentally an obligation. You must protect people. And if that takes publicizing information, then so be it. Um, but the Chavetz Chaim seems to not quite have that formulation. Um, I don't want to get into the details of what that, what difference it makes, how you frame it. Um, but the, the Chavetz Chaim says that no, when you have information that you can share, that will be beneficial. Um, so then it is potentially permitted if seven conditions are met. Um, and they are as follows. I gave you a little summary here. Um, one, you have to witness it yourself, according to the Chavetz Chaim. You can't get it from hearsay. Uh, two, um, you have to think about it carefully um, and make sure that what happened is actually a violation of halacha. Um, the third is that first, you have to try to rebuke the guilty party. I mean, only then should you resort to, uh, to publicizing um, the crime. Uh, the fourth condition is that you shouldn't exaggerate. Um, the fifth is that you must have pure intentions, right? You must be sharing the information to protect the victim or to accomplish the legitimate goal and not because you want to hurt the person <coughs> who's committing the crime. Um, the sixth is if it, there is any way to achieve your goal other than Lashon Hara, uh, then you should try that first. Um, and the seventh is that you have to make sure that the harm that comes to the transgressor is not worse than would be warranted by a Jewish court were they to try this um, issue uh, in court, right? So if someone stole and in halacha, they'd be responsible to pay back what they stole, or if they did it in stealth, they're responsible to pay back double. Um, if they're going to go to secular court and they're going to be penalized 10 times that, right? They stole a million dollars and they're going to get a penalty and they'll have to pay 10 million. Uh, so then according to the Chavetz Chaim, you would not be allowed uh, to publicize the information because by publicizing of the crime, you are bringing about a worse consequence than halacha uh, would warrant. Um, so what we have so far is the following. We started out by noting that there are at least two problems that you have to overcome to be a whistleblower. Um, one is the issue of confidentiality, and the second is the issue of gossip, of Lashon Hara. We noted that everyone agrees there are exceptions, that there are cases, whether to protect people physically or to protect them monetarily, you are allowed or obligated to share that information. However, we've seen two different models, um, which, as you can see right off the bat, will lead to uh, different um, expressions of this legally, of when you can do that. Um, the model of the Pitchei Tshuva, right, which is, listen, there's Lashon Hara, but if it's a case in which it's Lutamad Adam Reyecha, you have to protect someone, either physically or monetarily, don't think about Lashon Hara, just go. You have a mitzvah to do, you have an obligation, you have a positive commandment to go and protect the person. Um, according to that model, it would seem that there is a lot of room 
when an employee sees that their company is harming people, is doing something unethical to spread the word, right? Um, and it's not clear to me how much of the limitations of the Chavetz Chaim, the Pitchei Tshuva uh, would require, because he says, listen, if you're doing it to protect people, so you're allowed to do that. You're, you have to do that. Uh, he might think that you should try other ways first. He might think that you should try to get people to change their ways internally. Um, but he doesn't say, he doesn't say whether you have to do that first. Um, the Chavetz Chaim, on the other hand, uh, does seem to think that there are cases uh, in which you are allowed to share the information to protect people. However, as we as we saw, he puts a lot of limitations on that. First of all, he thinks you should try um, to rebuke the person. And even if that doesn't work, think creatively. Is there any way that you can prevent the harm, the crime that's being committed from being committed without utilizing the, um, the weapon of publicizing the information? Um, and if you can, so then you're allowed to do it, but only if um, you're just going to prevent the crime and you're not going to lead to the, um, the transgressor uh, being harmed in a way that is more serious than they would in, in a halachic uh, context. Uh, you have to do it for the right reasons. Um, you can't exaggerate, etc. cetera. Um, now, again, this is going to um, have a chilling effect on whistleblowing because it's very hard to meet all of these uh, conditions. Um, and as I and, and as I noted, I tend to think that uh, much of modern halachic literature, as much as they give lip service to the Chavetz Chaim, um, are going to fall more in the camp of the Petrei Tshuva, who they often quote as well, um, and are going to say, listen, in a case when the way to protect someone is by publicizing information, you don't necessarily have to think about all these conditions. Um, Maybe they're good ideas, right? It's probably a good idea to, to try to stop the crime and stop the unethical activity um, first. That, you know, that might be true, but they're not going to be quite as, as rigid. I mean, if you look, for example, um, Rav Asher Weiss, Rav Asher Weiss in number eight says, listen, uh, there are two halachic models that you have to think about. One is called hutra, and one is called dichuya. Um, hutra means that there's a prohibition, but under certain circumstances, the prohibition ceases to exist. Um, there's another category called dichuya, which means that um, the prohibition exists, but you're allowed to prioritize other values. Um, in the first model, you don't really have to justify yourself, right? Once you've determined that it is a case in which um, the prohibition is not in effect because there's a counter value, so then you don't have to limit yourself. You don't have to hold yourself back. Uh, if you think dichuya, namely that the prohibition exists, but there are exceptions carved out, uh, then you really do need to justify yourself and you're going to be much more limited in what you can do. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim model is essentially Dichuya, where Lashon Hara exists, but it's held in abeyance if absolutely necessary. Um, and Rav Asher Weiss argues, and again, there are other poskim who make this argument as well, that, um, that it's not that, it's Hutra. And whenever you are doing it for a good reason, uh, it's not Lashon Hara at all. Um, and presumably this um, will apply <clears throat> uh, not only for Lashon Hara, um, but for, um, for revealing secrets as well. Um, presumably the same rules that we can use for Lashon Hara are similar, if not identical, in the case of <coughs> revealing secrets. And you see this, I won't read it inside, but you see that in number nine, uh, in the in the Chavitz, in the uh, Rebbe Lazar Waldenberg rather in the Tzitzel Yezer. 
Um, and if you turn to 10, you will see um, that there are explicit sources in the Talmud that seem to support this more expansive model. So for example, in number 10, the Gemara says, You expose the hypocrites due to the desecration of God's name. When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, I will lay a stumbling block before him. Um, and now whatever exactly Hanifa means, um, it's clear that the Talmud here says, look, someone who seems to be one way and in truth is a different way, um, they're a hypocrite. They're doing, they're presenting themselves to the world in one way in private. They're doing something different. There's a positive value to, uh, to publicize the information. Um, and again, within that model, within the taking Mafarsin and Hanifin seriously, within taking the Pilchechuva's model seriously, that publicizing information is a mitzvah when you're doing it to protect people and not just a, um, an exception within Lashon Hara, right? Not just the Isser, the prohibition being held in abeyance, but it's a positive uh, obligation that is going to leave a lot more room for whistleblowing um, as a legitimate or perhaps obligatory um, activity. Again, according to the Chavetz Chaim, it might be legitimate, but only after you've tried other options. Um, within this model, it could be that this is higher up on the list <coughs> and a much more legitimate option to utilize. Um, I gave you in 13, and if you really want to think about these issues seriously, you can find this article online, um, but an excellent article by Tzuriel Rashi and Hananel Rosenberg um, called Shaming in Judaism, Past, Present, Future, and, and Future, um, they note that the idea that publicizing information about crimes um, is part and parcel of the Jewish community. This is how we deal with unethical activity um, is, is really quite established. And they give many fascinating examples. So just to take one, they write as follows. Uh, in cases where communal authority did not provide the tools for the rabbinical court to punish the transgressors, or when for whatever reason, the leaders did not want to impose such harsh punishments as excommunication, we find a further practice of public shaming particularly within the ultra-Orthodox community that involves a print communication medium, the Pashkevil, the wall posters. Right? If you've ever gone to Mea Sharim, you'll see these, right? The signs everywhere. This person is a heretic. This person is a criminal. This person is whatever. Um, shaming via Pashkevilim was carried out in the spirit of the edict, publicized the flatterers before a defamation of God's name. The stress here is on sins committed secretly or on people who pretend to be righteous. And the disclosure is designed to warn the public about their actions, right? So they know that even in the modern, you know, Pashkevilin, right? These signs that you find all over the streets in Meisharim and Bnei Brak, um, there is a, a expression of this idea that publicizing a crime, publicizing unethical activity um, is actually a legitimate way of, pro of protecting uh, the community. Okay, um, I'll pause for questions, right? Now we've set out sort of the basic model. Um, any questions, comments so far? Um, okay, so I will, I'll turn to the next issue, which is anonymous sourcing. Uh, wait, I got a comment in the chat. Um, Sivan says, isn't naming and shaming a person prone to be abused? Yes, I will get back to that hopefully in like three minutes. Um, but yes, right. What I'm saying now is dangerous. So let's get back to it very, very soon. Um, okay. I'm going to briefly do this thing about anonymous sourcing. Um, if someone is a whistleblower, does he have to use his name or not? So 
Um, the same for Uraim. Relazer of Metz has a fascinating position. Um, we noted that despite the fact that in modern parlance, we talk about Lashon Hara as gossip, um, not everybody agreed to that. Uh, one of the people who didn't agree to that was Relazer of Metz, um, the Uraim. Um, and I'll say it outside because I, we, we, are, we don't have that much time. Um, but the Uraim argues that Lashon Hara actually is not gossip. Lashon Hara is only being two-faced. Um, if I don't care that you know that I'm insulting you and I insult you to your face, so that's not Lashon Hara. Um, that might be Onat Varim, the prohibition against hurting people verbally, about verbal, against verbal abuse, but it's not Lashon Hara. But if I do something behind your back because I'm afraid to do it in front of you, that is Lashon Hara. That's Rachil. I mean, the Uraim argues that the only time you violate Rechilut or Lashon Hara is where you're two-faced, where you do something anonymously behind somebody's back because you're afraid for them to know that you're bad-mouthing them. Um, now, based on that, um, the paradigmatic case of Lashon Hara would be anonymous whistleblowing. Um, uh, even if that, now, even if you don't agree with the Uraim, uh, there are two reasons um, raised by Rabbi Yona to believe that anonymous whistleblowing, anonymous sourcing in general is problematic. Um, one is that it looks wrong. It looks, if you do it and you put your name on the line, you put yourself on the line and you say, you're doing this wrong and I understand that I'm putting myself out there and there are consequences to coming forward with this information. Um, so then that's okay. But when you do it privately, so it looks wrong. Um, it looks wrong. And it seems like the reason you're saying this is not because you want to do the right thing, but because you don't like your boss. You don't like your neighbor. You don't like your partner. You don't like whatever. Um, and therefore, ideally, you should never anonymously <clears throat> source. Um, and the second point is that <clears throat> it also makes it hard to believe it. Um, right? If you put yourself out there, so that means that people can come back and check the information, right? You claim that your company is stealing, they're involved in insider trading, they're, they're cooking the, the books, they're doing whatever. Um, if you put your name out there, so now people can come to you and they can say, what's your evidence? Um, but if you don't, they can't. Um, and he says, if that's the case, it might not be effective because maybe they won't believe you. And if they don't believe you, then what was the point in spreading the information to begin with? What made it legitimate to publicize the information was you were trying to help people. But if no one's gonna believe you, you won't help them. And therefore he argues that simply to justify talking badly about someone, you need to put your name out there so that it has um, the ring of, authentic of authenticity so that people believe it, so that it's effective, so that it's worth it. And if you don't, it's forbidden. However, he notes um, that this assumes that you're not gonna get hurt. Right? But if you're going to get hurt physically, or perhaps you're going to lose your job. Um, so then he notes, so then it really is uh, permitted because then people understand that it's not an ideal situation. But you know what? Sometimes life isn't perfect. Life isn't ideal. You're trying to deal within a non-ideal situation. You're dealing with someone more powerful than you. Um, you're dealing with your boss. You're dealing with someone who has a lot of power. They might want to hurt you. Um, again, at the very least, make you lose your job or worse. Um, and therefore, in that case, he says it is legitimate. Um, so what that tells me is that um, even in a case when someone decides, listen, my company is doing something wrong, the world needs to hear about it, 
Um, and even within the model of the Chavetz Chaim, I went through everything. I tried to, and I put the sources again about rebuke uh, and the like in, uh, in 17. I went through, I tried to change it from within. It didn't work. So maybe even according to the Chavetz Chaim, it's legitimate and a mitzvah for me to go and, and tell the papers and, and whatever the case may be. Uh, you have to think about um, whether you should do it anonymously. And what's clear from these two sources is at the very least, anonymous whistleblowing should be your last option. Um, one, because that might be the paradigm of Lashon Hara, is when you're being two-faced, right? You pretend to be a great worker, to be on board with the comp company culture, and then you're stabbing them in the back, um, even if legitimate. Uh, that, according to the Iraim, is Lashon Hara, the paradigm. And according to Rabbeinu Yonah, um, it at the very least lo lo looks wrong, and it minimizes the effectiveness of what you're trying to do, which might undermine the legitimacy of what you're trying to do. And therefore, ideally, if possible, you should avoid it. However, as Rabbeinu notes, and this most modern authorities agree with this, uh, that's only an ideal. If you can't, because you're going to get hurt um, and you, you're going to lose a job and you need that job. Uh, so then there might be room to justify even um, anonymous sourcing. Um, okay. Um, now, turning to Sivan's point. Now, Sivan notes, okay, this is very nice, Lashon Hara and um, revealing secrets and the exceptions. Um, but let's just talk about the fact that simply uh, embarrassing someone um, is also super problematic and allowing people to use the tools of publicity and shaming is very dangerous. Um, and that's right. The, the Talmud uh, notes um, in very harsh terms in number 18, and this appears in several places in the, in the Talmud, um, building on the story of Yehuda and Tamar, um, so if you remember, Yehuda has three sons. Um, his oldest son marries a woman named Tamar. His oldest son, Er, is not a good person. God, God kills him. Um, so Onain marries um, Tamar as in Yibum, in a leveret marriage. Um, he is also bad. He also dies. Um, Yehuda doesn't want Tamar to marry his third son. Um, so he lies to her and essentially lets her... Um, live without a husband in her father's house. Eventually she realizes what's going on, takes matters into her own hands, dresses up as a, as a prostitute, uh, seduces Yehuda, um, and then becomes pregnant. Um, and a few months in, um, the people notice that Tamar, who's supposed to be sort of married or married in waiting to Yehuda's third son, Shela, is pregnant. Um, and he sentences her to death. Um, now, when he sentences her to death, instead of saying, well, it's legitimate because you were the man I slept with and you are one of the people that I can perform this leveret marriage with, um, instead, and she can prove it because, as I didn't mention before, uh, when he slept with her thinking she was a prostitute, he left um, his signet ring and his cloak and his staff with her as collateral so that he would come back later with payment. So she has these objects to prove it. Um, she doesn't. She doesn't publicize it. Instead, she sends him and says, whoever owns these objects is the father of my child. Um, giving him the chance to, um, to fess up or not. So the Talmud says, why don't you just say it? So what you derive from here is Noach Lola Adam Shia Pilatmolatoch Kivshana Aish Valyalbin Pnechavero 
Berabim. It's better to throw yourself into the fiery furnace than embarrass your friend publicly. How do we know? From the story of Tamar. Now, this Talmud, this passage, highlights the fact that public humiliation is really, really bad. It's really, really bad. Now, how bad? So the simple understanding here is it's actually a cardinal sin. That if you embarrass someone publicly, it's better to die rather than do that. Um, now, is that actually true? Is that actually how we rule? Um, so amazingly, several Rishonim think yes. Um, Tosvot says yes um, and says this is the fourth cardinal sin, um, which doesn't make it to the list of three for technical reasons. Um, Rabbi Yonah says yes. He says the reason it doesn't get to the, th the big three of cardinal sins, murder, idolatry, and forbidden sexual relationships, is because it is a subsidiary of murder. Uh, and therefore, yeah, it's better to die rather than shame someone publicly. Um, on the other hand, the Me'iri, for example, says, what are you talking about? This is just an expression. It's, it's, it's hyperbole to show you just how bad um, embarrassing someone um, is. <clears throat> now, why is that relevant? So the Nativo Shmuel in 19 notes, well, it's relevant because if you really rule that embarrassing someone publicly is a cardinal sin, it's better to die than do that, then if the whistleblowing is going to lead to the your boss, the company, being embarrassed um, publicly, well, then you can't do it. Um, you can do whatever you want behind the scenes to try to make sure that the money is returned, um, to make sure that people stop getting cheated, but you can't publicize it. Um, if you don't think that it's that if you think this is just hyperbole, um, which is meant to tell you, look, embarrassing someone is really bad. And therefore, you should think really seriously before you do it and only do it when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, then whistleblowing is possible, is legitimate. Um, that's what Siva Shmuel uh, notes. Um, now, even if it's hyperbole, as Sivan noted before, um, it's still bad. Uh, and therefore, um, I think we would have to, to tweak what I said earlier, right? Earlier, I said that according to um, the, uh, the Pitchei Tshuva's model, which is that publicizing information to protect people is just a mitzvah, uh, and therefore, you know, it can maybe be uh, early on in your uh, toolbox of how to deal with crimes uh, within your company that your, your boss or whatever is committing. Um, the fact that, you know, publicizing things that will embarrass people is, is so bad that at least the, the Talmud leaves it open to the possibility that it's a cardinal sin, uh, does say that this is really dangerous. Uh, and therefore, um, I think everyone would agree that even if it's legitimate and even if it's obligatory, um, you do have to think long and hard about whether this is the right way of going about it. Um, that doesn't mean you can't, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that doesn't mean you might not have to. But the fact that the Talmud uses such language either as hyperbole or maybe more than hyperbole, um, and maybe actually as a formal law that embarrassing someone publicly is like killing them. It's, it's a cardinal sin. Uh, yeah, you know, that should give us pause and should remind us that even if whistleblowing is an important tool under the right, in, in the right circumstances, when that's the way to protect um, the public, that's the way to, to protect shareholders or, or whatever, to protect 
um, right? You can think about all the different cases, right? People who um, are poisoning the water, right? With, with all types of chemicals, you're protecting people, being whatever the case may be, um, still, um, you have to take it seriously because embarrassing people is serious. It doesn't mean, that, again, that doesn't mean it's forbidden. That doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's not obligatory. It just means you got to think about it first. Um, all right, I have to, okay. Um, Sivan adds, this caution against embarrassing someone in public may be in tune with the principle that no one is guilty and otherwise conclusively prove guilty. Right, and Sivan notes that another reason um, to think about this um, seriously is that maybe they're not guilty, right? Maybe you think they're doing something wrong, um, but maybe you know going to the papers is a problem because they'll be tried in the court of public opinion, and maybe they're really innocent. Um, and yeah, that is definitely another reason. Um, and this goes back to the Chavetz Chaim, right? Make sure that there are there other ways that are not going to be harmed um, in ways that are unfair. And the you know the worst way that could be unfair is maybe they're innocent, which was another one of his uh, conditions. Um, oh, another comment. Right now, now, Deborah correctly says, but without an investigation, how can it be discovered whether they're innocent? Right. So, um, right, that's the balance. So I think what you'd have to say is, listen, it's, uh, there's no way out of this, right? If something is going on unethically, uneth unethical, in illegal within a company, or at least the, the employee thinks that it, you know, thinks there is. You need to do something. And if you can't stop it, you need to tell somebody. However, the fact that um, embarrassing someone publicly is so bad, it means that you at least need to think about, are you sure something's going wrong or not sure? Is there a good reason to believe it? And even when you are going to publicize it, which may be the right thing to do, um, who do you publicize it to, right? Do you bring it to the tabloids or do you start by bringing it to a, bring it to the police? Um, Right and letting them decide. Right, um, it could be that look, bringing it as an invest. Now, yes, if it if they launch a legal investigation, will that often end up in the press? Also, that's true. But at some level, what are you supposed to do? But the fact that embarrassing Bill publicly is problematic might mean that look, even when you blow the whistle, you need to do it in a responsible way, and maybe going to the to the um, to the police um, and not straight to the papers. Um, is a better way because it means that it won't be as public or the investigation is more likely to be carried out methodically. Um, and people are, you know, you would hope that the police and their investigators are less likely to jump to conclusions. Um, so it's a balance. On the one hand, you want to make sure the investigation happens. You want to protect potential victims. On the other hand, you don't want to um, hurt the perpetrator who might not really be a perpetrator, meaning if they are perpetrators, so then you, yes, you can hurt them, but they might be innocent. Um, and that's why you, there is this balance. And on the one hand, you have to recognize the obligation to protect the victims and use um, information sharing as a way to protect victims. On the other hand, you have to recognize the power uh, in shaming and sharing information and make sure that you're doing it right. I mean, I think that's, you know, what I would walk away with uh, in terms of, of whistleblowing. And I see that I'm running, really running out of time. So let me just throw out um, a few uh, a few points. Um, <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, I will just know that uh, Rav Unterman quotes this Nitivot Shmuel and, and pushes back on it and notes that legally, in the end of the day, uh, it's clear to him that you are allowed to spread information, even if it's going to embarrass someone, if uh, you're doing it to protect people. And he, he deals with the Tamar case. Um, he also adds there's another reason. Um, and he's very fond of this in the Nitivot Shmuel. Um, and I, I've seen that this particular piece is quoted quite widely um, across the denominations. I found Chuvot. Uh, they quote this particular piece, not the first half of the Shmuel, but the second part, um, that um, another reason to allow whistleblowing is not just to protect the victims, but it is because an employee um, is a, uh, has a responsibility to, let's say, the shareholders or to the, to the community. Why? Because they work for the company. And therefore, the Nitzvot Shmuel says, listen, um, whistleblowing for an outsider is one level of responsibility, but maybe an employee has a higher level of responsibility because since they work at the company, they're contributing to the crime that's happening. They're contributing to the damage that's happening. And therefore maybe an outsider is more limited in terms of when they should jump to um, whistleblowing, but an employee would have more responsibility um, because since they work at the company, they are also responsible for what the company uh, does. Um, I gave you here a little bit of a, a summary from uh, Rabbi Dr. Aaron, Aaron Levine, who notes that in the end of the day, and this is, I think, um, what everyone's been saying between Sivan's comments and Deborah's comments, um, is that the key to, realize, to, to understanding whistleblowing um, is the fact that on the one hand, there's clearly a responsibility to protect potential victims. On the other hand, um, publicizing things, per, um, hurting someone who may or may not be guilty, um, you know, who you think is committing a crime, but honestly, you don't really know yet. Um, there's a there's a competing, there are competing values. Um, and he argues that that's really what the Chavetz Chaim seven conditions are about, is somehow trying to balance um, these competing values. Um, he then also adds, um, this very fascinating um, idea that um, you, part of the responsibility to whistleblow is from imitatio days to be like God, um, because um, God right wants to take care of both sides. God wants to take care of society, uh, and therefore he actually argues that when it is legitimate um, to be a whistleblower, you're actually being godly and, and um, fulfilling the mitzvah of a mitatio a day, which is, I think, a very fascinating idea. Um, and you can see his quote here. Uh, we only have two minutes left, so I'm just going to summarize what we have here. Um, the last point here is the following. Um, we've noted that it might be more problematic to, let's say, go to the press than to the police. Um, because you're jumping straight to public humiliation. You're not letting it go through due process. Um, however, um, you'll often hear that people raise the question, okay, fine, but isn't there a halakhic category called misira of giving someone over to non-Jewish authorities? Uh, and therefore, doesn't that create a unique problem when you go to, uh, to the police? Um, so I, I'll just note that um, I tend to side here, but I gave you a lot of sources here with, with Postkim who believe that here, I'll give you just the, 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 the sum, summary here in the end. Um, many authorities argue, based on a host of, of, of evidence, that a misira was fundamentally problematic in societies, that when someone was thrown in jail for even the pettiest of crimes, 
Um, they were at the bottom of a pit without food and they very likely were going to die or something like that. Um, but many believe, um, as Dr. Shoshan notes here in 31, I would like to add that Ravarim Lichtenstein has repeatedly stated he accepts the position they received from his father-in-law and teacher, uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, the name of the Rav's father, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, uh, that in democrat democratic countries, the laws of Messira simply do not apply. Uh, and there are many authorities that think that variations on this theme, that in a society where there is a working legal system that tries to be fair, um, and especially when someone has committed a crime in that society and therefore they're not being punished capriciously, uh, that's not Masira, because Masira um, seems to have been um, in its classic form because the government, um, A, the punishments were draconian, and two, um, the governments didn't necessarily actually wait for an actual crime to convict people of crimes. Uh, when you have those two factors, right, capricious governments that punish people whether or not they're guilty, um, and governments that even when someone's guilty tend to punish people way out of proportion, um, in societies that do have some sort of due process um, and try not to do that, uh, there is a lot more room, especially when there's good reason to believe someone actually committed a crime. Um, and considering the fact that people are responsible to keep the law because of dina machuta dina, um, at the very least, the obligation to keep the law, plus whatever halachic thing they're violating, like stealing. Um, in such cases, it is, it is legitimate um, to turn them over to the government, let the government deal with it, and that is not Masira. So there is um, a lot of reason to believe that's true, but I gave you the sources here from, um, from 22 to, uh, to 29, but we are out of time. Um, so I will stop it there. Um, and again, as I said, I think the point really comes to what I said before, as, as, as uh, Rabbi Dr. Levine says, on the one hand, you have all these things that tell you you have to be careful um, with sharing information, confidentiality, um, public humiliation, Lashon Hara, um, on the other hand, you recognize that there's at least a dispensation, but probably an obligation to protect potential victims. And therefore, at least as a tool in the toolbox, um, wherever you put it in the hierarchy of tools you should use, um, whistleblowing is a tool that an employee can have to protect people who are being wronged by his, by his company, by his boss. Um, but you do need to take it seriously because um, there are sort of dangerous um, values that you're crossing uh, if you do it wrong. Um, and that's some of the things we talked about. What are the balancing factors? What do you have to do first? Should you do it anonymous, anonymously? Um, but, uh, but like I said, this week and last week, our goal was not just to talk about the employee-employee relationship between them, but to talk about the moral responsibilities that you have when you're in that context um, for things that the people in your work, uh, for the things that the people in your workplace do that affect people uh, in society at large. Um, and with that, Thank you for joining me for the last six weeks. Um, I've had a lot of fun uh, thinking about these issues. And as always, you can email me, you can WhatsApp me. Um, if you want to follow up on these issues, I can send you more sources on, uh, on pretty much any of the topics that we, we talked about. Um, and uh, that's it. I'll turn it over to questions or call it a night. Evie, all yours. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Do you want to enter the screen just so we can all see each oh, other? Yeah. Perfect. Yay, good. So I think somebody wanted to say something. Uh, go ahead, whoever started talking, uh, feel free. Did, did somebody start saying something or am I, did I mishear it? Nope. Okay, well, thank you so much. It was indeed very, very, very fun and very informative. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the full uh, sixth class. Uh, thank you, Sivan, uh, to you as well. Um, 
And uh, uh, yeah, thanks again. Uh, many, many, many thanks to Rabbi Ziering for this wonderful uh, session. And thank you also to everyone who uh, joined us uh, today and throughout the session. Um, thanks also to the people who uh, watched us uh, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the next one uh, with Rabbi Ziering. Uh, tomorrow we have uh, a live uh, class, also the last uh, class in the series on the invention of the seven-day week with uh, Dr. Ezra uh, Zuckerman-Sivan. So hope uh, to see you there as well. Um, we have many class, uh, class offerings uh, happening all the time, hopefully more coming up with uh, Rabbi Ziering. Uh, you can find out uh, information about current and upcoming uh, class offerings as well as registration links uh, on our website at www.dresha.org classes. You can also watch uh, recordings of the classes as well as this uh, series is fully available on um, www.dresha.org live. Thank you again, Rabbi Ziering, for this full session. Uh, and thanks again to everyone who uh, joined us today. And I hope to see you at one of our upcoming classes at Dresha.